What's up, everybody? Welcome into Flippin' Bats, where today we have new Detroit Tigers play-by-play announcer Jason Benetti about to join. Uh, I'm pumped for this one. Obviously love the Tigers and, and watching Tigers games. And to now have one of my favorite announcers that will be calling all of the games is, is really exciting. So we're going to talk to him about how that all came together, how he ended up in Detroit, uh, what the process is like for an announcer, of course, his tenure with the White Sox. He also spent 10 years in the minor leagues. And uh, I, I know the grind as a player, but I can only imagine the grind as a as an announcer as well. So I'm going to talk to him all about that, his favorite calls with the White Sox, uh, what he's most looking forward to with the with the Tigers, and a very heartfelt message to, uh, to Tigers fans at the end, which was really cool as well. So uh, without further ado, let's get to it now and welcome in new play-by-play announcer for the Detroit Tigers, Jason Benetti. All right, and I am pumped to welcome him in now, Jason Benetti, the new play-by-play guy for the Detroit Tigers. Jason, first off, thanks for hopping on, my friend. Hey, Ben, good to see you not in the press box at Dodger Stadium. Yes, finally, finally, for sure. But, Jason, I want to start with that. You're heading to Detroit uh, this offseason, a big move, one of the one of the bigger moves of the offseason so far. You're heading to Detroit. How did this all come together? Yeah, it's funny uh, the way the way people have said it like you just did. I feel like I'm a free agent signing <laughs> like MLB trade rumors is going to post things about me. Uh, no, it's um, honestly, truly, it's that the White Sox were generous enough to let me pursue this. They didn't have to. And then the Tigers are a franchise that once you meet the people inside those doors, you want to work with them. Like there are some phenomenal people there. And it's, you know, AJ Hinch, uh, we know what he is as a manager. He's fantastic. He's a, he's a brilliant thinker. Scott Harris and everybody below him are building something really cool. But you know, the Ryan Gustafson's, the Ron Colangelo's, Ben Fiddleman, there are marvelous people on the day-to-day side of the Tigers office that it it was very clear and talking to them and the people at Bally to uh, Jeff Bile and Greg Hammerin, like they want to make a really cool broadcast and they want to do it in a collaborative way and they want to have fun and they want to treat analytics with some regard and they want to treat stories with a lot of regard and they really want to do something fun and awesome and to be you know honest and i think you can ask anybody who works with me i want to be around that it fires my yeah. brain it makes me excited to do so many creative things who knows what they'll be but also just have a really good time calling baseball because at the core that's what this is all about is enjoy the ballpark, enjoy the people and enjoy whatever happens over the course of 162. Yeah, I do love I I love Detroit. I love Comerica Park. And when, when that team is good, uh, the atmosphere is truly unbelievable there in Detroit. We we joke around about a big offseason signing and that trade rumors are going to talk about you. But Jason, what is the process like for for an announcer? Do you guys have 
contracts with teams? Is it a year by year thing? What is the process for you specifically? I know you said the White Sox didn't have to do this. So what does that mean? How, how does this happen? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I, I, it's different for every announcer, I think. Uh, some announcers are employed by the team. Some announcers are employed by the network. I think most of us have contracts of some length. At that point, I was going to be in year two of a two-year deal with the White Sox, an option that they picked up after my second contract, right? So I had a five-year deal with the White Sox plus a two-year option. And part of the reason this all came about is because the White Sox don't know exactly what's going to happen with their TV network. They're not signed with NBC Sports Chicago past 2024. So there was no guarantee from their side that we were going to be able to do something long term, even though there were some conversations about that. And, you know, we thought we were going to be able to that just wasn't in the cards for them. And the Tigers decided to and I think, you know, honestly, and I don't, I don't want to like project what happened with me onto other people. But I do think it is really cool that the Tigers decided to make me a team employee because who knows what's going to happen with the regional television model, right? We've, we've seen things happen in San Diego and in other yeah. places, but for this industry where it is very close to my heart to be a storyteller and to have people who are young storytellers and great storytellers be able to make this a career, the fact that the Tigers said, let's go get somebody who has done this for a living uh, and you know has had some success let's go do this regardless of the situation and invest in that person as a team rather than tying it to the network. I think that's yeah. good for the industry and it excites me because I really want this to be a career in the future, you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And that is something to be excited about. And I personally think that Tigers have a soft spot in my heart, obviously played there in that organization for a while and have been going to games in Detroit since I was what, like 10, 12 years old. What excites you the most about the 2024 Detroit Tigers? Yeah. I mean, watching AJ manage last year, I really do think he got more out of his roster than most managers across major league baseball and the investment in young pitching and the development of young pitching. I saw Reese Olsen's debut, and it was against the White Sox, who weren't an offensive juggernaut at that point. But like he was, he looks like he's eleven, and he <laughs> was nails. And yeah. so watching some of these young pitchers come up, and obviously there are health issues with a couple of the guys, but I, I know Scott Harris and everybody are very excited about where the young pitching is going. Kenta Maeda just joined up as we're talking here over the last 48 hours. But for me, it's that this seems like a team that's both dedicated to development and willing to, and I know Javi Baez didn't have the season anybody wanted last year, but they're dedicated to development and willing to spend to bring people in. And so for me, it's that combination, but it's knowing that there are people in Toledo and in Erie that can help this team down the line. But a number one is investment in young pitching and not everybody's doing that, but you have to have those options to make yourself a viable team with the depth you have to have. And they play in the American league central, which is, you know, in so many ways, the land of opportunity. It's winnable. Yeah. <laughs> Jason, you, I think your story is fascinating. You were a minor league announcer for a decade and 
I know very well the grind of of the minor leagues. It was I did it for five, six years, and you did it for a decade. So from a player perspective, I get it. But it, I feel like it has to be a similar sort of thing for for an announcer. There's so many bus trips and living out of hotels, and and the minor leagues isn't uh, isn't super glamorous. What is, what was the grind like for you as an announcer in the minor leagues? It's it's really funny timing that we're talking about this right now, because last weekend, our football crew for Fox did Oregon, Oregon State on Friday, mm -hmm. and we got on a bus as a group, like 20 of us, and our crew took a second bus and went right to Husky Stadium to do Washington, Washington State. And I got on that bus, you know, with like the the sort of felt like area rug seating <laughs> with oh, blue yeah. and red and orange, right? And then oh, yeah. somebody spilled a drink on the bus as we're driving <laughs> up I-5, four and a half hours. And like one of the ball bearings didn't work as well as maybe yeah. it should have. So it was a little bumpier at points. And I loved it because that's where <laughs> you get, I felt, I, I really felt like I was back in the Carolina League. Yeah. Like that's what I felt like. And and we were driving from Winston-Salem to Wilmington, right? But it it is I would never trade my time in the minor leagues. And it's not just for the stories, but the stories are great, right? Yeah. Like my first ever minor league road trip, half the team got bed bugs. We stayed, <laughs> we stayed at just an awful hotel in Northern Virginia. And I was like, guys, 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 no, no, no. We're not, this is not, this is not a thing. Uh, but, you know, the idea that you have the opportunity to every day get better at this thing that you love to do that's where players and I really overlap, I feel like, because it's not easy, but it's also what you love to do. So anybody that's like, oh, it's so hard and all that stuff, that is true. But we're also not working with our hands for a living. Like we're not digging ditches. We're not doing construction. There are people who work harder than we do. It's the, men the mental um use of energy that really is the issue right like there are some days you wake up and you're like i am not good at this i'm just not good at this this is not going to be my day i feel like i'm underwater i'm yeah. tired all of it i'm fighting with the copier because i'm doing game notes as well like that stuff is all real but it taught me that like the half hour a day i did have time to work on the craft was the most important half hour of my day. And if I didn't make that half hour happen, I felt like I was wasting a day. Yeah. And that has meant so much to me in my career, because I think if you play stuff from last year to the year before, to the year before that, I would hope you will hear evolution in what I do, because yeah. you, you have to have that. If you don't, and that's why I, I really respect the heck out of Joe Buck. I like him for his sense of humor. I like him for so many reasons. But what I love most about Joe Buck is if you go back and listen to his early calls on Fox in the World Series, they were somewhat muted and the energy just wasn't like enormous. And mm -hmm. that's who he was at the time. And now you listen to like the punt return touchdown for the Jets uh, on Monday Night Football earlier this year. And there's this just like grand power behind him. And he made that evolution happen on the biggest stage in our nation in sports yeah. television. And so that's kind of what the miners taught me, along with the fact that like scouts will come up to you and say some of the most ridiculous stuff. <laughs> like I had a scout come up to me and go, hey, uh, what do you got, polio? 
Like that was the way he oh introduced himself to me, right? Because I don't walk like everybody else. He, he literally said, not like, hi, I'm blank. He said, what do you got, polio? Oh, <laughs> like, my wow. God. That is so awesome. I just love that people are so very direct in minor league baseball. Like, you know, no, it's everybody's everybody in every job associated with minor league baseball is doing the same thing. They're trying to get good enough that people notice them. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I remember, you, you know, one thing you learned very on, I, I very early on, I got drafted, went to the New York Penn League. And, you know, there's some nice stadiums, there's some not. Same with the Midwest League. You can either be in like Clinton or you can be in like West Michigan's great. Dayton, Ohio's great. Like Bowling Green's fun. But you learn very early on, if you don't like it, play better. And that's the slogan of minor league baseball. And I feel like that goes for every single job in, in the minor leagues. Yeah, that's it's so funny because like we all we always when I was in AAA when I was in Syracuse mm -hmm. we used to get so hyped for going to Pawtucket, especially on a weekend because we were like, man, we're gonna get such great tape off of this. <laughs> it wasn't gonna be like two thousand people because Pedroia was rehabbing, and so it was gonna be like all oh, these crazy Boston people, and it was gonna sound like a major league game, but like. This is all why I love watching The Voice on NBC. Like, it's one of my favorite shows <laughs> because it is the perfect example of what minor league baseball is. Like, people don't know you. People have no idea what you are. But if they just turn on the game and they hear something that they have to have, that's your way out. Right. Yeah. Somebody turns on your tape and they say, God, I love that guy. I love the way he does what he does on the baseball diamond. That's your ticket. And, and it is a meritocracy in that one way. I know if you're drafted highly, you get more opportunities. Oh, I yeah. know all that. But like the one bit of merit is like, you know, do you know, you remember the name Jim Negrich? Yeah. So Jim played at Pitt. I had him in. Uh, as an opponent in a ball. And then I had him in AAA at a couple stops and Jim hit like 380 one year. Yeah. And it was like, give him a shot, man. Like give him, and he made his way to AAA and like all he did was hit. And you want to see that guy have a great career. Like Tyler Moore, when I was in AAA with the nationals, he was like the prototypical four a guy. Whenever he got to the big yeah. leagues, never got a real legit shot but he'd come back down to Syracuse and slug 8,200. Yeah. And, and it was like, you're going to get one or two chances. And then it's a matter of, can you make it more? Yeah. Yeah. It's like uh, my best friend is Mike Gerber, who was kind of a similar guy and, and but with the Tigers and, and Giants as well. But that four a guy gets, you know, he's a 15th rounder, but just hits everywhere you go. And that's kind of the beauty of it is, you can you can play right next to a first rounder that's signed for eight million dollars, but you can be a fifteenth rounder. I think he signed for like five thousand dollars out of Creighton, but he just keeps hitting everywhere you go. And next thing you know, uh, you're a big leaguer. And I think that's the that's the cool thing for sure about about the minor leagues. Jason, did you ever you mentioned you mentioned the voice and how it's you, you know you don't necessarily know the names, you just know and you can understand what talent is. And and oh my god, I I, I love that. When you were in the minor leagues for a decade, was there ever a player that obviously wasn't a big name at the time, but you just knew was going to become a superstar? Or I'll give you one that I really, really thought he was going to be like, I was like, 
there is no way this guy isn't anything but awesome. And he had a very nice major league career. He never became like Michael Jordan, but watching Gregory Polanco in Indianapolis, it was like watching T.O. in the outfield. <laughs> I mean, he was just an absolute stud physically, and he killed the ball. Uh, the the one guy that I was really fortunate to, honestly, but we only had Bryce Harper for half a month for one mm-hmm. year, but Bryce was in Syracuse when I was in Syracuse. Steven Strasburg, I was I was the one that was there for Steven Strasburg in AAA, and we like built a riser for all the national writers who showed up to cover Steven at then Alliance Bank Stadium in Syracuse. You know, you knew that Steven was different. Yeah. And you felt it watching him and that changeup. That was before, you know, the demon changeups that are all over the map nowadays, right? Yeah. Uh, it was like Pedro, and then it was Strasburg throwing a changeup at 90, and everybody's breath was stolen away. Mm-hmm. And so he was the guy that I felt really fortunate to get to watch. The other guy that I thought it was just, it's just a really cool moment. Do you know Brian Bogusevic at all? Have you ever met him? I have not met him, no, but I do. Oh, I... Yeah, so he went to Tulane, and Bogey now is doing some pre and post for the Astros. Uh, but he was a pitcher. He was a lefty pitcher who was a two-way player at Tulane, and the Astros drafted him as a pitcher. And he made it to Double A as a pitcher, but he had like a four-five or something like that. So I was in Salem in in High A at the time, and Bogey came back to us as a hitter. They converted him to a hitter, and he took batting practice in Myrtle Beach. And the first day he took batting practice at Myrtle Beach, I was like, "That is the best hitter on this team, and probably <laughs> the best hitter in the league." And watching guys do that is just phenomenal like to know that you could just at the drop of a hat and he didn't have more than like 10 days in between his last start and coming to hit as I recall and he was crushing the ball in batting practice he never had a great big league career but that was one of those moments that I thought yeah that's a pretty special athlete yeah for sure after after a decade and a wild journey in the minor leagues, what was it like? I know you grew up a you grew up a White Sox fan. What was it like landing your dream job with the Chicago White Sox? Uh, that, it's a crazy question to answer in the past tense. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> uh, the so two days before it got announced, mm-hmm. I was at I was emceeing an event for a nonprofit, the Cerebral Palsy Foundation in New York City. And as an introduction for me to come to the stage, they played this CBS Sunday morning piece that Scott Simon did on me in our booth. And it was all filmed at the White Sox ballpark. And I was wearing this White Sox stuff. And I knew at that moment that this was going to happen, that I was going to be the voice of the Tigers in a couple of days. And I was watching it and it took every bit of me to not get emotional, really because... I know how important, and I don't say this out of ego. I say this because it's one of the cool things that has come from me seeing what a Major League Baseball telecast is like. People spend a lot of time with us, mm-hmm. like an over overwhelming amount of time with their local announcer. Mm-hmm. It is a ton. If somebody sits and watches an entire season of Major League Baseball, that's 480 hours with that person, you know, or national games taken out like 440 hours. That's like seven days with somebody. It's like spending an entire week with me. I have (laughs) friends from high school that have no interest in spending three days with me. But the, (laughs) the, the point is it was, 
you can never take out where you grew up from your heart. Mm-hmm. But I will say, and talking about minor league baseball, like I became the voice of the Syracuse Chiefs in 09 when my partner Bob McElligot took over as the radio voice of the Columbus Blue Jackets. And over that time, I did six seasons of Syracuse Chiefs baseball. And four of those were with um, America's favorite announcer slash martyr, Kevin Brown of the Baltimore Orioles. Uh, Kevin is one of my best friends in the world. And we had a marvelous time doing games together. It is wild to look back at that booth and say like, wow, both of us made it to the majors. And, you know, people think highly of our work. But the last day that I worked in 2014 with the Syracuse Chiefs, uh, Kevin, unbeknownst to me, called a lot of people from before my time in Syracuse or some of my time in Syracuse, and they did like these farewell messages. Mm -hmm. And his entire goal was to make me cry uh, during the course of the broadcast. And it worked. (laughs) It does not take much to make me cry. I will cry at the um the scene where Andy Bernard plays I will remember you when he leaves the office right <laughs> like that it doesn't take it's not a great feat by Kevin to do this but I um I very much get attached to the places I am because this yeah. is all about the people and you know that like you have a ton yeah. of friends across the baseball landscape and this is the best part of it so what I found from being the voice of the White Sox is you cannot, no matter where you go, and I love Syracuse and I love Winston-Salem and I love all the places I've been, but you cannot take out of somebody where they grew up. Mm-hmm. The cool thing about my experience is I have a lot of the same feelings about the places that have become adopted homes mm-hmm. as well, because People invest in what we do, listen and care and want to have fun on a nightly basis. So what I learned is that it's always going to be in me. And I also am going to have great fun in the American League Central (laughs) playing the White Sox now. (laughs) We have baggage, Ben. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Jason, your, your White Sox tenure is done, at least for now you never know what the future holds in this world especially no no no, no. i'm a tigers guy man absolutely doing that do you have a most memorable call with the white Sox? if i were to ask you jason when you look back on your tenure there what's your most memorable call in your eyes yeah so it's it's one of two you know tim anderson i got to know really well and i don't know how tigers fans feel about tim anderson but the one thing about tim is he throws himself at the game and he throws himself at life and he's been through a ton and he got thrown at by the Royals that time. And then like a week later, it was actually against the Tigers. He hit a home run and it won the game. And I said, have all the fun you want, Tim Anderson at the end of the game when he was around at the bases. And that was one of those moments where I was like, I feel like I'm vibing with the person And I think the best moments in sports television are when there's some understanding of the stakes for the people, right? And and why that matters. And that's why like Carlos Rodon's no hitter was powerful for me because I know what he went through to get to that point. But the one that I hear most about, 
uh, is when Eloy Jimenez homered at Wrigley Field. And I said, thanks, Cubs, as the ball cleared the wall. <laughs> so I do have, I guess, a pension for kind of sticking it to people, even though I didn't really mean it like that. It was more like, <laughs> hey, we're glad to have you. And it just so happened you came from Sheffield and Waveland. Yeah. But th those are the two, I would say, that probably mean the most to me. Yeah, that's awesome. You always do these on social media. You always do the first person you think of, dot, 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 depending on the stadium, wherever you are. Uh, and you'll post a photo and people will respond with the first person they think of. So let me ask you this. Your new home, Comerica Park. Jason, first person you think of, go. Yeah, the answer for Comerica is Miguel Cabrera, mm -hmm. right? Because he's been there for so long. But honestly, this is ridiculous, right? But the first visual I have, because I was a batting stance guy slightly when I was a kid, like we'd play wiffle ball in the backyard, as so many do. And I was terrible. Are you not the but... field? <laughs> no, 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 I'm not. It's kind of an esoteric one. The I, I really was always fascinated by how Mickey Tettleton ever hit the ball. <laughs> Because he would stand there like he was at a doctor's office, mm -hmm. right? Like he would just stand there so casually and the bat would just be sitting there like over his shoulder and then he'd load and go. But uh, that was one of those batting stances where it was just so fun to recreate because you're like, it's just so casual, yeah. but it's iconic in my mind because it was that pocket of time when I was really growing up and learning all the visuals of it. And it's why batting stance guys had such great yeah. success on the social media stuff. But like that, it, that does that Cecil Fielder, like that was the tigers of my youth. Yeah. Uh, but Miguel Cabrera is my answer for Comerica Park. And if I would have said your brother, people would be like, oh, he's just kind of pandering. Like he's just talking about because he's talking to Ben and all. So Miguel Cabrera. Uh, for me, that answer is uh, is Al Kaline. And I don't know how um being in the same division but I, I don't know how close or if you were able to to talk to him much but Mr. Kaline um is is one of the best humans that that ever lived and it was really cool for me playing in the organization to uh get closer and closer with him as as uh, my career continued with the Tigers and we got really close and unfortunately uh obviously passed away a few years ago but literally right before he passed away uh, I got a jersey of his and he asked me if if I would want him to sign it. So it's like one of my prized possessions is uh, Mr. Kaline signing a jersey. And it was literally like weeks before he uh, ended up passing away. And uh, it's one of my uh, cherished possessions forever. Wow. Yeah. I, I cannot purport to know him. We talked a couple of times. Mm -hmm. I would be in there talking to Jim Price, who sadly has passed as well. Mm -hmm. And and Mr. Kaline would walk in and he was just always very kind to me, you know, I but that is, dude, that is that is so cool. Yeah, that is so cool. Yeah. He, you know, like you, you hear all about him growing up, one of the greatest baseball players of all time. But getting to know him and and his wife over the course of those years was honestly like I became such a, a bigger fan of. I mean, that's probably my answer now for my like idol of watching baseball because of how good he was on the field and how good of a person he was off the field. And uh, it was a really, really cool relationship to have uh, as I continue with the Tigers. So I see Comerica Park and obviously there's a million memories that come back, but my mind goes to uh, Mr. Kaline for sure. That's 
That is so cool. Do you, do you remember the first time you, and I know this is your podcast, so I'm not allowed really no, to ask. No, ask away. <laughs> but do you remember the first time you went to Comerica? I do. I The first time I went to Comerica was in 06. So Justin actually made his debut in 05 uh, at Progressive when it was against, at the time, the Indians, but the, the Guardians organization. Fourth of July was his debut, and we were there. And Justin didn't know that you could get, like, family tickets or that there was a list so is me my mom and my dad sitting in section 800 like in the nosebleeds up top and we like my mom was screaming for Justin and people around us were like what what are you guys doing like this you're so loud and my dad at one point turned around I was like that's our son and people were like oh my god what are you doing up here and Justin <laughs> had no idea that we could sit in the family section you were sitting next to like John Adams, the drum guy. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. One of my favorite, the one of the, this was a little later because I was in college, but this is a funny Mr. K-Line story. But uh, when I was doing my pre-draft workout, I had a few teams call and say, hey, do you want to come to the stadium and for the pre-draft workout stuff? Well, the Tigers, Tigers called me up. So my dad and I flew up to Detroit. We did the, I, I was down on the field. We did the whole thing. And, you know, I was throwing from the outfield. I was hitting and then I was running and um, Mr. Kaline was there and I had already met him quite a few times, but I wasn't super close to him yet. And I remember taking my batting practice on the field. I was so nervous. It's a big deal. One, you know, wanted to do well in for, before the draft. And I went in there and I, I thought I hit really well. A um, couple homers hit the ball out, hit the, hit the ball well to the opposite field. I get out feeling good about myself, you know, and Mr. K lines, one of the greatest to ever do it. And he comes walking up to me after and he goes, how'd you feel in there, Ben? And I was like, uh, yeah, I think I felt pretty good. And he's like, yeah, you looked a little nervous, huh? And I was like, yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely a little nervous. Not my best. Uh, so just a hysterical memory with him for sure. You're like, yeah, no, definitely. I was super, I can do way better than yeah, that. For sure, for sure. Me, I could have done way better. <laughs> Uh, Jason, you've been an incredible advocate for cerebral palsy and, and other disabilities. And, and I want to ask, what's the biggest piece of advice that you would give someone in a similar situation who wants to make it in the sports entertainment industry that to, to the point that you have? Yeah, I, uh, I would say the answer is get as good as you possibly can by diving into whatever craft it is mm -hmm. and then make people say no. You know, I, I have been very fortunate to have a lot of people who are older than me listen to my stuff when I was much younger and really help develop what was a passion of mine. And so doing it a lot plus getting feedback has been super important to me. And so I think the key is I was naive getting into this business. I didn't know that there was the superficiality of television. Not that that's all TV is, but there is some about like, hey, how do you look, right? We are on camera. That's a real thing. And so I didn't really know what the hill would be or how steep it would be. And I still don't really know because I don't particularly care a whole lot. Because if you're good at what you do or some level of quality, it doesn't matter what you look like or what you have that is like the thing that would put you at the outlet mall, right? I mean, all of us have a busted zipper somewhere or a bad button or a paint stain on the lapel. 
Some are just more outward than others. And so uh, for me, it's just a matter of get as good as humanly possible at what you do and don't really care as much about the climb as much as you care about the craft of being really good at it. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. So even if you have somebody walking up to you saying, what do you got polio or something? Just keep, just keep getting as good as you can. What do you, what do you got polio? I mean, I can picture it like a huge straw hat on like the most scouty scout you could possibly <laughs> imagine. It was like central casting should have pointed his radar gun at me and hit me <laughs> over the head with his clipboard and then asked if I had polio. <laughs> Jason, I, last year, uh, I think it was last year, Comerica Park introduced the hot brown slider. Now, I have to admit this. One of my producers knows your former producer, uh, Chris Withers with the White Sox, and he said that he has never seen you as disappointed as last year when you guys were doing a segment and they were sold out of the hot brown slider. This is why I took the job, Ben. <laughs> because I must have foodstuffs that are hot brown related. So uh, a bunch of years ago, I did. A, you're right. And thank you to Withers for that. I'm speaking directly <laughs> to you, Chris. Chris Withers, White Sox producer. Thank you for that nugget. Really appreciate it. Thank you for contributing to the discourse. So uh, in Louisville, the, the Brown Hotel is where they invented the hot brown and they invented it because they were sick of creating food for people who were too boozed up. So they just put a bunch of like turkey and bacon and gravy into a thing and then they threw it in the oven. That's literally the origin of it. But it's a great food if you're into, you know, like open face cholesterol. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, when I heard they had a hot brown slider, we were doing a segment called... Uh, called uh, Home Cooking, where they would bring food into the booth. And at first we were allowed to eat it. And then I started eating like a very aggressive jackal. And I was told by some people at the White Sox that I was no longer allowed to eat on camera, <laughs> uh, which, you know, I was trying to sell the food in the ballpark, but evidently they don't want that. Yeah, you're working hard for the stadium. Yeah, I'm working hard, man. I'm working hard. Okay. So then they didn't have it in Detroit. And I, you know, I didn't throw anything, but did I think about it? Yeah. Yeah, I did. Because honestly, like I was told that there would be a hot brown slider and I was disappointed. I'm a, I'm a foodie. I'm a ballpark foodie. Like I've had the Mac and cheese at the stand down the first base line. Like I I'm into ballpark food. I love that stuff. The fried pickles in Pittsburgh were really, really good. So like, yeah, let's go. I love food and you will see me on the concourse buying my own food because I do love ballpark food, maybe more than life itself. You're, 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 even, you're calling out specific food at specific stadium, PNC's fried pickles. If Okay, so just throwing it out there. If I ask you one stadium favorite food item of, of anything in baseball that a certain stadium has, what comes to mind? Ooh, that's so good. That is such a good question. And I will say... Uh, the this is a weird one but the um the kansas city chef has become a friend mm. at kaufman stadium and last year he brought us up and it was special for like that weekend but he brought us up a hot dog and the relish for the hot dog was made of gummy bears what and it was unbelievable <laughs> He also has a barbecue sauce that was made of like 
there's a pulled pork sandwich that he made two years ago that was like the barbecue sauce had chocolate in it as well and it was lethal like if food could be a banger as the kids say right that is it but this guy is uber creative phenomenal so yeah he's uh yeah he's on my list um one other thing that that wither said is that you have the worst recent travel luck in history so i just i have to know personally what what has been so bad with your travel luck oh ben so last year i was doing games every once in a while at bill walton's house in san diego and so i was flying back from san diego And I'm texting a couple friends. Kevin was one of them actually with the Orioles. And I'm texting a couple friends and I look up, I have my headphones on. I look up, I'm in like row five or whatever. I look up and there's smoke filling the cabin. And I was like, that is smoke. So that's not great. (laughs) Uh, So I look and I don't know where it's coming from. So I'm thinking like the engine's failing, who knows what. So I look in the aisle and there's like a waist high fire in the aisle on the plane. And I was like, oh, my gosh, at least we know where it is. Right. So it's not internal to the plane. But somebody, you know, when they say, hey, spare lithium batteries can't be in your checked luggage. Please remove all spare. The reason is sometimes they spontaneously combust. Wow. So that's not just a random statement that they say it's real. Exactly. (laughs) I thought it was bullshit, too. So like this guy's spare lithium battery caught on fire. And the flight attendant came running up with a fire extinguisher and did an amazing job. We circled back, landed in San Diego. It was like on the, it was like national news, but nobody knew I was on the plane. So that was one. A couple weeks later, I was flying cross country again and a woman just like passed out on the flight. So they almost had to make an emergency landing. She ended up getting revived. But then recently in the last month and a half, there was a big thud upon takeoff Mm -hmm. of a flight. And then- As we're getting about midway through the flight, it was from, I want to say, Minneapolis to Chicago. They come on the loudspeaker and say, hey, the flight attendants are going to have to go through the emergency landing protocol because you may have heard our front nose tire uh, malfunctioned on takeoff. So our tire may not deploy. So this could be a really rocky landing that includes a number of bumps. So they say, hey, here's all this stuff. You can't have your glasses on upon landing because like shards might go into your corneas, right? And so they say, okay, as we get to about 5,000 feet, if the flight attendant says brace, brace, brace over the loudspeaker, you have to go into like brace position with your head between your legs. And they did. And so like we had to basically wait to see if we're going to bounce up and down as we landed. We were fine, right? These are the perils of having one of the best jobs in the world. But yes, I've had a run of luck over the last eight months or so that is beyond the scope of what a human should deal with in the air. Good Lord, that is crazy. Hearing brace, brace, brace on a plane as you're landing cannot be a good uh, a good feeling at all. No, I, I mean, again, like, there have been substantially worse things that have happened on planes very clearly, right? I am okay. But I also like, you know, if you fly a lot and you've had a great run, you just imagine that you're like on a bus, right? And you're just hanging out. I now am thinking about landing (laughs) at all times. And when we don't land at the proper time, I just imagine that the nose tire didn't deploy again. Uh, Jason, I also heard a story one time that 
you had a home run call at guaranteed rate field that your call literally set off the fireworks at the stadium. You got into it, home run call, fireworks go off. Only problem is the ball ended up being caught and it didn't go over the fence. What do you remember about that? Yes, I remember that you are very, very right. <laughs> so it was, uh, it was one of the Uptons was in left field for the Blue Jays. And he went up and then he came down and did the whole dejected, forlorn, I didn't catch it thing. Yep. So I called it a home run. And then he was like, no, just kidding. Right. <laughs> so I was like, oh, boy. So I during they shot off the fireworks. Right. I ran into the, the scoreboard room during the break and was like, yo, <laughs> that's on me. Sorry. And they were like, no, 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 no. I was like, no, don't. I know you shot them off because I said home run. Like, you're not going to make me feel better about this. But that taught me, you know what? You probably should wait half a second. <laughs> Just make sure that you saw where the ball landed, you idiot. Uh, Jason, it's been, um, I, I think, in, in my opinion, your career so far has been incredible. And you're one of my favorite people on the planet to listen to. And now you're, you're with the Detroit Tigers. And I feel like you've uh, accomplished a lot already in your career. Do you have an ultimate career goal in your mind? Something that you've always thought is a, is a career goal for you? Other than calling the spelling bee on television? No, I, um, the, my career goal is to work with amazing people at this point. Like I really, and I know that sounds a little bit like a press release and I don't mean for that to happen, but my brain fires when I'm working with people who are creative and fun. And we had that in Chicago. Like our crew is great. Withers is great. Our directors, Andrew and Dave are great. And Chris Kamka, I, you might know him from Twitter. People listening might know him. He's an absolute savant with information. And he would always surprise us in the booth. And Stoney was great. We had a wonderful thing. And now, uh, you know, I get to go to a place that wants to create a cool atmosphere of you know, whiteboarding ideas yeah. and coming up with creative solutions to what baseball should look like beyond what's next in baseball television. And that's not to say we're going to throw a bunch of like 3D stuff on the screen and we're going to do like what, how can we make it fun for the audience, more fun than the average broadcast, whatever it might be, yeah. but also doing it with people who really care about doing fun, engaging, entertaining television. And uh, yeah, so I, my career goal is to do that for as long as I possibly can with people who want to be amazing. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, Jason, as you can imagine, uh, a lot of a lot of Tigers fans listen to, to Flippin' Bats. And uh, last one for you. Do you have a message to Tigers fans ahead of your first season in Detroit? Yeah, not all the jokes are great, guys. <laughs> Some, you know what they don't. Jason, I get it. They don't all land, kids. Uh, look, I am the type of person who really feels like sometimes, well, with the creative process, you have to miss in order to hit. There have to be big swings and there has to be fun, right? For Not for everybody is the idea that there will be fun every night in the telecast. And it's not to say that we're going to do stand-up comedy because that's not the goal in any way, shape, or form. But we are going to enjoy ourselves. 
even when the Tigers trail eight to one, we're going to try to have fun at the ballpark because growing up as a kid, I never played. And that's another thing you should know about me. If you tweet at me, what do you know you've never played? Get in line. Okay. <laughs> that's a thing that I hear a lot. And that's okay because it's true. Like I didn't play. But my whole goal of our telecast is that is an, it is an us. It has to be an us, our producer, our director, our graphics person, and especially the analyst, right? The people in the booth with me are an us. Yeah. And it's going to be a conversation and it's going to be fun. And you know, fun for us, like you, you can decide if you're enjoying it or not, that's your You're gonna call. have fun. Yeah, I'm telling you, you're going to have, no, 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 no. I, what you should know is that I deeply care about making sure that you all have a good experience watching Tigers games. And I listen to people and I know people have opinions on how telecast should be and everything like that. But I promise you, even when we make mistakes as a group, we do it out of care and we do it out of honor for the fact that you all spend your time and your money, time probably even more precious than money for some people with three or four kids, yeah. right? But you spend your life with the Tigers over the summer. And that is not lost on yeah. me. That is important to me. And it's necessary to remember on a nightly basis. So yes, like if we make mistakes, if we have stuff that pops up that you don't exactly like, you, you need to know that the level of care we all put into this comes from a deep love of the craft of calling games. And the other thing that you need to know is, even if you don't like a player because of what they're doing on the field, you have people in the booth who understand that baseball is full of failure. And there is going to be part of that in the telecast. It is hard sometimes. I know you're going to be frustrated with some of the players and they're going to be frustrated too. It is our job to make you understand them best mm -hmm. while also not making excuses for the things that don't go well. Yeah. So just understand there's a deep care for you and for what you're watching. That's all. Jason, I'm so excited to to watch you and listen to you in Detroit this year. Thank you so much for joining me. This has been a blast. I've always been a huge fan of you and your work, but uh, even bigger fan of you as a person. And, and uh, I really appreciate you hopping on and joining me here. Ben, thank you. And this consider this an invitation to come do a couple innings at some point when you come to Detroit. Absolutely. Year. Would love to, my friend. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. All right, just wanted to thank Jason again for joining me. What an awesome human being and a great guy. And uh, I'm so excited for everybody to, to listen to him this year in Detroit. Uh, some, some great stories. His minor league stories are great. His travel day stories. Um, and, of course, you, you can tell. Um, this was cool. You could, you could really tell how much it means to him to be a part of um, fans' lives essentially there's 162 games a year and when you're listening to to all the games you're hearing his voice for over 400 hours as he said and uh you can tell how much that means to him and how much work he puts into his craft and uh actually uh, I, 
Jason's reached out to me before uh, to ask for a story to tell on, on air. He puts so much work into his craft, and it's something that um, I, I try and do as well. And to be able to hear him talk about that was really special. So hope you all enjoyed this conversation. That was new Tigers play-by-play announcer Jason Benetti. Uh, make sure you check him out this year. But again, thank you all for listening. Make sure you subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast, Apple, Spotify. You can also watch everything now on Spotify. It's on YouTube as well. We're on all social media at Flippin' Bats Pod for all of them. But that does it for this episode. Until next time, my friends, 